Listen well to this story I tell, for some is fact and some is fiction, but all of it is true. I'm Bradley Rolfe, and I'm reading my blog. Do we have some excitement today? That's another travelogue. I enjoy putting these styles together, and maybe I need to find, I don't know, more of a more of a daily life opportunity to, to put some stories together in this observational style. I hope you, dear listener, enjoy. This one's a little uh, four-parter with a bonus, where I went out to Davis, California area to visit my brother and my sister-in-law. Originally posted August 31st, 2019, September 2nd, September 4th, and September 6th of 2019. Reunion Travelogue 1. Arrivals and Departures. I'm sitting at an airport bar stool, enjoying, consuming, a mediocre hot dog and overpriced craft beer. I was expecting a concession stand quality dog, but that's not what I got. What lies partially in front of me and partially in my stomach is more like a home version of a gas station dog, haphazardly adorned with nacho cheese, sauces, and relish plastic spooned out of a jar. Perhaps I was foolish to believe anything could ever taste as good as the links that band moms served up under the bleachers at JV football games, but a boy can hope. Last time I was in this airport, I wasn't even traveling. A few years ago, I spent two weeks working on special assignment for a food service management company on behalf of Big Coffee to train their new staff in licensed systems and procedures. And before that, if memory serves, the last time I traveled by plane was eight years ago. In that instance, also California-bound on a spring break missions trip, primarily to do touristy things and secondarily to canvas for and perform community service on behalf of a church plant in San Francisco. I am not... I'm not largely a stranger to commercial flight, but the bulk of my experience was in my youth and particularly pre-9-11. Therefore, I am observant of the peculiarities of this place. The history of air travel is a frontier mentality, full of exploration and excitement. But magic has become mundane, and history is not experienced, but rather relegated to an informational placard, ignored by the smart traveler's power walking down the jetway. Air travel now is the antithesis to exploration. An explorer departs, full of wonder and anticipation for the new worlds they will discover in their travels. They return, having expended their energies, ready for respite before sharing their stories of adventure with the tribe, here at the terminal, the gates, that energy is reversed. It is the arrivals that carry the optimistic hopefulness, a bright energy and pep in their step, freshly sprung from the steel cage they were shipped here in. It doesn't matter if it's home or elsewhere, being able to extend one's arms to full wingspan for the first time in hours invites the world of possibilities. Conversely, the departures are morose, 
facing the inevitable, loading their stomachs with carb-heavy food to better hold them to their seat, a self-sedation to combat pressurized cabin fever, or possibly piling on weight to spite the corporation carrying them by adding to the necessary fuel consumption. Where's the connection? I don't know, but as my time comes, I must unwrap the duffel straps from my legs and dismount the stool. Time to wait. Time to load. Time to question my choice of food. I really should have followed my nose to Annie Ann's, because family will never let you down. Reunion Travelogue 2, In the Air and on the Ground The Flight I came prepared. I downloaded some podcasts, I have an actual book, and worst case scenario, the flight offers Wi-Fi for $8. However, I find myself waiting as long as I can before I decide to do something to pass the time. It doesn't feel appropriate to engage my diversions until I've had my ginger ale and pretzels. There is an order. A ritual. We push back. We take off. We climb and fail to identify anything on the ground by sight. The snacks are served. Then the flight has begun. It's a strategic choice, too. The longer I can go sitting, doing nothing the less time I have to occupy until we touch down, therefore making the flight feel quicker. Part of me wishes we had to take turns rowing or, or something to make the plane go. Travel is active. Riding on a plane is not. A woman on the opposite aisle ahead of me is playing an iPad slot machine game. She wins. A lot. She tires of that and plays a differently-themed slot machine game on her iPad. She cycles through several different-themed slot machine games. The flight is four hours long. Flight attendants who wear watches. Do they constantly reset to local time, or pick a zone and do the math? I wanted to listen to the Falsettos cast album, but I didn't download it before leaving. It's about time. I listen to Follies instead. You don't have to be a star to be a great actor, and you don't have to be a great actor to be a star. On the ground. Saturday evening was spent in conversation. Saturday morning was spent in conversation. The rest of the day was fun and games and new strangers. These strangers are friends with my family. I have conversations with them as if they are friends. Reunion Travelogue 3, Midweek Camping at a coffee shop. I'm on vacation, visiting family. This local grind and brew is on the small town main drag, but it's the middle of the week, and even if this was a destination, it would be an off-peak season. But I don't think they have tourists here. 
Am I the only person with a social fantasy that a stranger will approach me, break the ice, and then ask me to tell them my life story? It's so quiet. So I work on personal projects. So I'm productive. Prior travelogues felt more inspired. Does this mean I have traveled poorly? Is there a market for flash nonfiction? I traveled from home to see people. I saw people. Do we not see the people we live with? Reunion Travelogue 4 Return When my brother picked me up from the airport a week ago, it felt like we picked up a conversation we had been in the middle of however many months ago we last saw each other. When he dropped me off today, the conversation on the ride to the airport was more of the same from the week. Nothing retrospective, nothing conclusive, no ceremony. I think that's the correct way to interact with the world. Everything is positional. See you later. Inspiration happens during those moments in between. Like when finishing an early morning beer at the airport bar, listening to an unfamiliar song on the speakers, thinking, Why am I not in a rock band? While in California, I went to world-class escape rooms in San Francisco. Tomorrow, I am going to Six Flags St. Louis. Roller coaster enthusiasts and escape room enthusiasts across the country look down on STL's available selection in both categories. Do we have a prestige issue? The adage, don't worry about what other people think about you, cuts in some weird directions. Don't be surprised when what you say affects how someone sees you. I got a window seat this time. I want to know what all these reservoirs are. I want to know what all these rivers are. Whitewater rafting is manufactured adventure. I successfully identified KC from the air because the Royals and Chiefs are parking lot roommates. The flight attendant offered me a second coffee. I said I was fine, but she said she was trying to get rid of the tray. After unsuccessfully offering to the final row before me, I offered to consume the last cup. Good deed for the day. What a stupid phrase. I did my good deed for the day. Let's compete to see who can do the most good deeds in a day. So here's, uh, before we jump into reflection, there's another blog post in the middle of this week, a standalone, posted September 4th of 2019. All art was once new art. Note, I thought I'd avoid excessive parentheticals by placing extraneous commentary in footnotes, but that has only served to increase the amount of footnotes, not decrease the parentheticals. But I suppose that's my voice. Before it converted to a public service organization to identify and label bad drivers, 99.1 FM in St. Louis was the classical, asterisk, music station. And on the breaks, the DJ repeated this wonderful catchphrase, quote, All music was once new music. 
the point being that the pieces they broadcast were, at one time, contemporary to the culture and had never been heard before. It's no false equivalency to say that those composers were the pop stars of their time. If you don't believe me, take a quick look at the life of Franz Liszt. That asterisk, by the way, uh, I am aware of the distinct genres such as Baroque and Romantic that are often erroneously lumped in with classical, but for simplicity of semantics, I'm using the fallacious term as an umbrella to cover a few centuries of piano chamber and orchestral music. I know it's wrong, but it's common in the vernacular, and we're not going to linger here too long, so write your own blog post if you have a problem with it. That mantra stuck with me, because when I first heard it, it immediately shifted my perspective. Before, I had a chronocentric relationship to any piece of media created prior to my cultural awareness. I may not have been able to articulate it, but all my life, if I encountered a piece of art, music, film, etc., I always viewed it as if it had always existed, as a time capsule and representation of the era. To my mind, classical music has always been hundreds of years old. Shakespeare's works have always been a complete compendium known to all, and a portrait of the dead historical Charles I has always been a part of the eternal collection at the St. Louis Art Museum. When you enter the world, everything is as it is and has always been that way. But the history of art is two in one fold. A search for human connection and a response to all art before it, in that same search for human connection, double asterisk. Okay, so this thesis is moot, and I'm not even taking the time to fully develop and defend it now, but maybe I will at a later date. Even if it's not entirely correct, it's not entirely wrong. When and how and why any media was created is equally as important, triple asterisk. Once again, moot and fairly postmodern, but go with it. Equally as important as the perspective the individual experience and audience brings to the piece. So the point of the mantra, all music was once new music, is an implied petition that the audience ought to marry the original cultural context with the contemporary perspective. Looking back to fully experience, evaluate, and value said music or any other given media. But Bradley, you say, and there's a footnote, you as the straw person, do you really expect me to research the social, political, and economic factors surrounding the creation of any piece of art I view? By no means. While it certainly adds value to the experience, it is not necessary to the consumption of said media. Now, let's put a pin in all that and talk about fear. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear can drive us to action or inaction, but when it comes to choosing what media to consume, whether it is the risk of time spent or time and money spent, the direction fear drives us is typically toward inaction. I fear that this 22-minute documentary on YouTube may not be worth my time, so I will instead choose to watch several shorter, informative, or comedic videos from unknown sources because I perceive them individually as lower risks. Fear makes us less likely to give a chance to something unproven. To bring this around to my primary artistic discipline, it has been said that going to the theater is a leap of faith, and nowhere is the leap further or the need for faith greater than with new works. Footnote, I first heard this in a curtain speech before a play at Tesseract Theatre Company, but I know they stole it from someone else, and I'm not really sure where the credit is due. Which brings me to the pivot. I am not 
arguing, though I do agree, that it is valuable to reconsider the classics with fresh and recontextualized eyes, but rather to look at the inverse of the adage that catalyzed this conversation. All art has the potential to become old art. If all art was once new art, how does new art become old art? Did the classics persist because they are good? Or do we view them as good because they have persisted? And what about the pieces that have not persisted? Do they lose value because they take up less bandwidth in the public consciousness? You won't hear Sopwith Camel on the oldies station, but does that diminish the fact that they got minor regional airplay in their time? And some college kid in the late 70s was so impressed with their sound he called record stores all over the state and drove cities away to find a copy of their album? If it sounds like I'm making a postmodern argument that all media is inherently equal, well, yes and no. I don't believe that postmodernism is a viable philosophy to carry at one's core. However, it is a useful counter to other extreme views. It protects us from the trap of measuring everything down to the ultimate dismissal of the idea that something can have intrinsic value. And art, by the definition of above, by nature has intrinsic value. Everyone is participating in the search for human connection through the creation of media and the consumption of said media. And the value of that media or art is not defined by how successful it is in a capitalist structure, but rather by how it creates and uncovers human connection. This is why art is a fundamental human right. We are all participants whether we think we are or not, so make the most of every interaction. You may wander into an independent art gallery or hear a songwriter in a coffee shop or see a play you've never heard of and maybe you will find something you didn't have before. You may connect with a perspective you didn't think you could connect with. You may learn about a fear or desire you didn't know you had. Do not allow yourself to be driven by fear to the familiar. Your neighbor needs an audience. You need an audience. New art is vital to the human experience. So make and be a part of it. As I've stated before, I'm discovering a symptom of being an internal processor. I have thought pieces of these thoughts so often in my mind without putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, that when I finally decide I'm going to take this one idea and, and make a thing about it, I know, I know, I know, I know I have made parts of these points, and even, like, segments of paragraphs here, uh, somewhere else, in, on my blog, either earlier or later, I need to find it, I need to find it. Uh, hoo, 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 hoo. let's see, let me see. Yes, yes, uh, there we go, so you... You, you dear listener, uh, have probably heard something familiar. In episode 6, you certainly heard part of this all music was once new music. And a slightly different, almost the same frame there. And then, where did I... I know I hit chronocentrism somewhere else, and I think in the same... I think I hit chronocentrism in the same context as well. 
yes, here we are. Uh, in 2018, episode eight, I went into a whole chronocentrism and, uh, well, let me see here. And I believe I spoke in that one about, did I once again ask the question of, is it is it good because it has longevity or is it have longevity because it's good? It's something that keeps coming up and up and up. And so all these same ideas in different contexts I threw out uh, in previous years. Knowing me, it's a little bit of self-cryptomnesia because obviously I was aware that I'd had these thoughts. I'd thought through them all and said, oh, I, mean, I want to put them all in one place. I want to tie them together in a single concept. And the nearness to which I phrased the story of all music was once new music to the December 2017 post, uh, I can guarantee that that was a story I had told in my head many a time and maybe to individuals in conversation, but did not believe I had written down. Because if I had if I had just read that first paragraph of STL Theater Review 2017 Part 5, I would have either referenced it directly or reshaped it entirely and not made a similar but different joke about 99.1 FM. Huh. <laughs> Maybe I should write more. There's a weird writer's guilt about published versus toolbox. One, I have such a poor discipline of having a chest of ideas. I have such a poor discipline of, hey, I'm going to write something and put it in the box. If I write something that I think is valuable, that I think I like, I throw it out there because I want to see what sticks. And, you know, then I'm looking at these and say, ooh, here are some, here's some ideas. Ooh, this would be a good script for a YouTube video essay analysis, or this would be good pieces of ideas that could be expanded into a greater essay. And that's wonderful to have, and I think that's what, quote-unquote, real writers just you're a real writer you're just weird uh i think that's what more disciplined writers have in their kind of just chest of ideas unfinished scraps they can go back to and as i'm reading through this blog i'm finding pieces that maybe they're not necessarily unfinished but they have so much more life available to them that they can be stretched and grown but then i worry and it's 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 silly because it at this point it's silly because at this point I have such a small audience for the blog and podcast that it would really make no more difference if I took some of these ideas and reformed them into something else and then that gained a larger audience. It would be doing no disservice to the original audience, but I you know, it's like well, what is it like? It's like uh who well, well, I I don't know what it's it's like. I don't I don't know. Well, I don't know what it's like, but it's a probably unnecessary worry. I worry that taking from my published works, my technically published works, my publicly available box of scraps, that if I expand or build on that, that that somehow will diminish whatever comes out of it. I think cognitively I can recognize that that is wrong thinking, but that is an idea that persists, and it's a it's a hurdle that exists mentally to my creation of things. Boy, I wonder. 
Like, if I had a month of no responsibilities but to create, would I actually do anything with it? Would I actually come out the other side? That would either be a beautiful treat or a terrible failure of an experiment. The world may never know. Reading my blog is a production of me, Bradley Rolfe. I can be found on Twitter and Instagram under my real name. If you'd like to skip ahead, links to my blog and other projects I'm working on can be found at anotherwhitesuburbanite.com.